sound team. And let's continue in that um, um, position of worship as we come to God in prayer. Um, let's keep our heads bowed and reflect on some of those amazing words. To the king in need of nothing. He doesn't need a thing. Empty-handed I rejoice because none of his positioning or authority depends on anything we bring. You are a good and gracious king and overcome with joy I sing. I will give to you my burden as you give to me your strength. Father, this morning I pray that you would make us people of perspective <clears throat> who see things as they really are. You call us to set our eyes on the things that are unseen, not on the things that are seen. And Father, this week, as we have set our eyes on the, on the news, it's hard not to lose perspective. As we see young and old weep, wail, and despair over the situation in Ukraine. Father, I pray that you would move in that nation and that you would cause your church the Ukrainian church, to stand strong. Empty-handed they will come to you, Lord, but you're the king in that situation who is in need of nothing. And Lord, despite the bomb and the bullet and the bloodshed, you are still good and you are still gracious. And we affirm those truths this morning. And Father, just reflecting on that this week, there's more than just Ukraine. Lord, over 82 million refugees across the world that we have taken our eyes off because we're focusing on Ukraine. Famine, drought, flood. Lord, it's hard not to despair. The curse is marching on at a steady pace. And Lord, we should not be surprised at this because we know that the result of sin is disaster. It's death, it's destruction, and we are seeing it unfold before our very eyes. But Lord, that is not the end of the story. We know the end because we have your word and we know you, this good and gracious King. We know that one day you're going to come back and your angels are going to shout, enough is enough. Behold, the place where God now lives is on the earth with, with men. Lord, that is not a fairy tale. It is factual, it is true, and it is our reality. One day you will return to this earth. You will resurrect it. You will restore it. You will restore us, make our bodies perfect, and you will establish us here on this planet, resurrected and renewed when the new heavens and the new earth join together and no more will there be any curse. Lord, I pray that we would plug our individual life and family circumstances into that reality, that we will know 
that we are part of that bigger picture and that we can take hope in it and actually be joyful in the middle of those hard circumstances. While we pray that for Ukraine, Lord, we pray the same for here in Rhode Island, where we know that there is still a battle waging here in this wee town. The enemy is trying to distract and destroy people here in this village, in this church. And so, Father, we plead with you that you would give us eyes to see you at work. Lord, as we think about this upcoming Easter service and the outreach into the community, Lord, what a joy to be able to actually do this now. So I pray as there's preparation, as logistics, you would be with all of that and that we would have boldness and courage, winsome courage to invite our non-believing family and friends to those events. I pray for those who would be doing the cooking, those who would be doing the, the activities, those who would be doing the preaching, Lord, in all of that, much glory would be brought to your name. We pray for the elders. We pray you would continue to lead and to guide and to encourage them. We pray for John. We ask that you would be all that he needs to be in this time. I pray that he would have times of refreshment, he would have times of encouragement, and you would be especially near and close to him and Julie and the children. Lord, for this entire body, we pray blessing, we pray hope, we pray joy, we pray gladness over this part of the bride of Christ, and that much glory would be brought to your name, and as an off chance, Lord, we would be recipients of joy in that process. And finally, Lord, be with Mark as he comes to speak to us. We thank you for him, him and Emma both in Little Willow. As Mark speaks, would you give him freedom? Would you give him a sense of joy as he opens up your word and communicates it to us? For your glory and our joy, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in John 16 this morning. your sorrow will turn into joy. And the disciples are confused about things Jesus is saying, and he tries to explain it to them. Starting in verse 16, <clears throat> Jesus says this, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, um, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the Lord's word. Thanks, Samuel, brother. <clears throat> well, it's a privilege and a joy to be back with you. I was seeing this date approach in my diary. Um, Emma and I, I'll explain in a second. Mark's asked to give, me an, give you guys an update on what's been happening with us over the last year. But as I've been seeing this date for Cornerstone, this two-week block with you guys coming in my diary, I've been smiling and looking forward to it. So it is, it's a joy to be back with you, brothers and sisters, as we share around the world. Marcus has asked that I just give you guys a quick update on what's happened with us over the last year, and it will be quick, it'll be two minutes, just we've got so much to get through in the sermon here, but so yes, after we concluded our placement at Cornerstone, we really just sought the Lord, where are you taking us, Lord? Uh, took into consideration how much I still had to learn in teaching and preaching the Word of God and everything. We learned so much amazing things at Cornerstone, so we just wanted to know what was the next step and the Lord led us to, well, a number of things. Uh, he led us to Newcastle, where we've been, we're now members there, and we'll be there until the Lord takes us onwards, uh, whether that be in a ministry capacity or, or whatever capacity. And yeah, a couple of things have happened that are, yeah, really big deals. Willow came along. <laughs> so that's been a joy and a privilege that she was born the 20th of December on her eighth wedding anniversary and three and a half weeks early. So we've been experiencing the joys of parenthood and trying to wrestle with the, the, the emotional highs and lows of that, the, the, the amazing blessing and the low energy, as well as trying to navigate the final year of Bible college. I'll be graduating in April. And we've been preaching around a considerable deal as well in Baptist churches. So it's just been an awful lot, but it's been a stretching time and a very fruitful time. So that's what's been going on in our lives. It's rather dull. Um, but we're, we're plodding on in a way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us very briefly, and then we're going to wade into our sermon. And I'm going to intentionally lay quite a bit of context this morning. We have two weeks ahead of us here, John 16 and John 17. Um, so I'm going to use this sermon to, to spend a lot of time in context, but let me just pray for us before we end, uh, begin the sermon. Well, Father, we... We come before you and we say we love you, Lord, and we worship you. We thank you for giving us even this Lord's day to come and celebrate the resurrected Christ. And Father, I just pray for each one of us in this room now, as we come to your word, Lord, that it wouldn't be just a transferring of information, God. I pray that this word would transform our lives. Your word says it will not return unto you void. Oh, Lord, would you, would you make us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you shape and fashion us by your Word this morning and the truth in these Scriptures? Help us see with clarity what your Word says, I pray and ask, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a certain well-known and very much beloved movie that was adapted from even more beloved book franchise, and, and that book franchises, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And for those who have seen the movies or, or read the books, you'll be familiar with a scene, uh, particularly in the movie, where Susan and Lucy are struggling to get asleep in the midst of a twilight-lit night. That evening, 
the book gives us the detail that Aslan had been sad and downcast, this great lion. And he has one last meal with his followers, and then he orders the camp to, to move. Susan and Lucy didn't know why he made this order. They didn't understand why Aslan was, was so downcast and burdened. And so they got up in the middle of this twilight lit night, and they went searching for Aslan. And at this point, they find Aslan. And he's walking into the woods by himself, and so they, they follow him. And when they catch up with this great majestic lion and they join him, they, they say, can we accompany you? He says, I'd be glad of the company. Now, Susan and Lucy didn't understand at all what was going on. They were particularly confused because Aslan turned around and said to them that they could only walk with him so far. You'd only come with him so far, and after that, they, they would not be able to follow him because where he was going, they could not come with him. So after a while in the the blissful calm of that twilight night in the presence of, of Aslan, the great lion turns around and tells him, the time has come, children. I need to go on by myself. And so they get out of the way and they hide in a part of the forest and they watch to see where Aslan will go. Well, to their dismay, their great leader, this, this beautiful, majestic Aslan, willingly walks himself right into the midst of hundreds of evil creatures. And what followed was the most difficult and heart-wrenching scene that Susan and Lucy had ever experienced. They watched on in horror and disbelief as the great Aslan was humiliated and mocked. As his majestic mane was shaved as he was bound up with no protest coming from him at all, not even so much as a word. They watched as he was cruelly dragged up the rugged and crude edges of the stone table. And it was there lying upon this table that they watched as Jadis, the, the evil witch, she turns and says to Aslan, you fool, you have given me Narnia forever and you have not saved his life, meaning Edward. Now despair in that knowledge and die. And they watched as Jadis plunges the knife into the heart of Aslan. How could this be? No, no, no. No, this is all wrong. The hero of the story surely can't die. How is this better? Why didn't he just consume the evil creatures? Why did he lie still and silent as they shaved his, his mane and bound him with ropes? Why didn't he silence their mocking threats? Susan and Lucy knew in an instant this great lion could if he wanted to. Why? There on the top of that hill did Aslan sacrifice himself on the stone table? The girls had no idea. The enemy thought they knew, but they had no idea. But Aslan knew all along exactly what he was doing. So to the girls and to the evil minions, it looked like evil had won that night on the stone table, but this would not be the case. Now here's why I've, I've shared that rather long story with you. And I, I want to use that hopefully familiar story as a visual guide for what's going on in John chapter 16. Because from John 13 onwards, C.S. Lewis really used as the inspiration for that story. 
This particular section of John's Gospels we find ourselves in begins way back in John 13, earlier that evening, where Jesus and his disciples, they're sharing one last meal. We know that meal is the last supper. And as the evening progressed into night, Jesus says so many things to the disciples that they just, they just don't understand. He tells them his hour has come. He emphasizes to them over and over that he's going to be leaving them very soon and where he was going that they couldn't follow. He tells them that what he's doing now that they wouldn't understand, but soon, very soon they would understand everything. He tells them one of them is going to betray him. And after Jesus identifies this person, we all know infamously as Judas, Judas gets up and leaves in this dramatic scene. And so at the end of John 13, it says night fell. And Jesus spends the entirety of John chapter 14 then in this upper room with his disciples. And again, he tells them these strange words that caused the disciples confusion, just like Susan and Lucy, and, and sorrow at just not understanding, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? He says in John 14 that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would come back to get them. The disciples didn't want to hear these words. They didn't want Jesus to leave them. How could that be better? They were troubled at this. But Jesus, he was absolutely sure of everything that lay ahead. And he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. That he was going to his father's house. He was going to prepare a place for them, and he was going to come back and take them to himself. And he also says that just multiple points throughout these chapters that he, he's telling them this detail now. I'm telling it now so that when these things happen, you'll believe. So he speaks these things to them. At the end of the chapter 14, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Rise up and let us go. And so they rise up from the upper room at nighttime and they take to where chapter 15 and 16 is set, and it's the dark streets of Jerusalem. We see such stark similarities between the story of Susan and Lucy and Aslan in the twilight-lit forest and the walk that Jesus and his disciples are now taking after leaving this upper room. Here in John 16, Jesus and the 11 disciples, they're, they're walking through the quiet, dark, abandoned streets of Jerusalem. And it's in this setting that Jesus is just, he's just quietly imparting final words to them as they navigate the streets and go down through the walls of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus knew what lay ahead. His suffering lay ahead. His death lay ahead. His resurrection from the dead lay ahead. But Jesus also, also knew that this would ultimately provide the forgiveness of sins uh, that it would provide reconciliation with God, that it would provide everlasting life for all who would believe in him for salvation. And much like Susan and Lucy, who were confused by Aslan's words and sorrowful at how sad and distressed Aslan is, here the disciples are sad. We know that from Jesus' just continual words of reassurance over and over, let not your hearts be troubled. And again, much like Susan and Lucy, we see in this chapter the confusion of the disciples regarding what is actually happening. They may not at this point even know that Jesus is walking now through the streets of Jerusalem down the ascent of Olives, and he's going to be walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they certainly, 
certainly had no idea that this would become the longest and most dreadful 24-hour period in their lives. But here's the thing, and it's, it's a main takeaway from our sermon this morning. Jesus did. Jesus not only knew that he was walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be betrayed by Jesus, he not only knew that his disciples were going to actually scatter and leave him alone, Jesus not only knew that he's going to be tried in the presence of the Jewish court and Annas the high priest and then eventually in the Roman court as well, he knew all of this was going to happen. But he not only knew this, he knew that this would result in him ascending the hill of Golgotha, where he'd be nailed to a crude Roman cross for six hours in what would be the most agonizing physical, spiritual, emotional experience anyone could ever do, endure. And here's what Hebrews 12 says. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We'll come back to that. But Jesus clearly knows what he's about to do. His suffering, death, and resurrection from the dead is ultimately for his glory and his joy, yes, but also a key takeaway from our sermon this morning as well. It will ultimately work out for the joy of the disciples and the course of the entire Christian church for the rest of history. Such is the magnitude of what's about to happen here. And I think that 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 reality that Jesus knew what was going to occur is just a, it's a very good compass to navigate the passage with. So I know that was a lot of context. Next week's context will be lighter. Hopefully it's framing our minds. We're walking through these dark streets and Jesus knows even though they don't. So look with me again to verse 16 if you have a Bible with you. A little while and you will see me no more. And again, a little while and you will see me. So here in the first half of this sentence, Jesus is he's telling his disciples, as he's been doing for ours, that in a little while you're going to see me no longer. And obviously what Jesus means is, quite literally and quite morbidly, very soon he would be dead. Very soon he would, they would just watch this night unfold as it turned to sunrise and, and midday and afternoon and they would realize that Jesus, in a very literal sense, was going to be separated from them. Not just spatially. He wouldn't just be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken and beaten and mocked and imprisoned. No, very soon they were actually going to witness to their horror, their Lord, their friend, their great friend, and their leader just nailed to a cross between two criminals. And then they would hear him say these peculiar words that they didn't understand at that moment. It is finished. And then they would watch as Jesus breathes his last. Very soon they would have to suffer all of that. Very soon they would have to suffer after that the indignity and the terror of not even being able to approach Jesus. He'd be taken away and he'd be buried in the tomb and that would be placed under the, the guard of the Praetorian guards. And there they would literally see him no more. But thank God there's more to this verse. Jesus continues, and again a little while, and you will see me. Jesus knew <laughs> the little while would be three days. Because that's how long his lifeless body was going to lie in the tomb of Joseph 
of Arimathea. But just as they would no longer see him in a little while, Jesus promises them that they would see him again in a little while after that. Now, let's slow down a bit and pause. When teaching the Word of God, when preaching the Word of God, when coming in the church and hearing the Word of God, it's always important that we corporately ask the question of the text, what, what doctrine's being taught here? It's, it's more than just narrative here, brothers and sisters. Every verse of the Bible, it needs to, be, needs to be examined, and we need to question what's coming out of the verse. What can this verse tell me? What can it tell me about God? What can it tell me about life? What can it tell me about my life? What can it tell me about purpose, about society, about the world, about the universe? Because where the Bible speaks, it's going to speak authoritatively and perfectly about what it's saying. So what does this verse tell us? Well, it tells us something about Jesus that should really comfort and reassure us this morning. Um, Sam just prayed it and Marcus has sang it. I, I believe this whole narrative from verse 13 to 19 the whole Bible, it just screams, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, is omniscient. Oh, unnecessarily big word. Very unnecessary. What does omniscience mean? Omniscience very simply means that the person who possesses it has complete and maximal knowledge. I don't know why we always put these big words on such simple truths, but that's what it means. And only God possesses these qualities and look how certain Jesus is of all along from chapter 13 until now, my hour has come. I'm leaving you, but I will be back. You don't understand now, but you will. I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you believe. You will sorrow now, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus knows what will happen, and he knows it perfectly. Okay? Wonderful. Now, another question we ought to ask ourselves when we're at church, when we're reading our Bibles and family worship time at home is, how does the truth of what is being said here apply or shape my life as a follower of Jesus? There's a truth here, and this truth, this truth is authoritative. It matters. It's telling us something that will literally better our lives. So what's it saying? Well, before I answer that, let's progress to John 17 and 18. Let me read it from you. I think I'm reading from the Lexham Standard Bible. It should be similar to the ESV. Apologies for that. I should have changed it. Verse 17 to 18. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he's saying to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going away to the Father. So they kept on saying, what is this that he is saying a little while? We do not understand what he is speaking about. Well, I want to bunch these verses together before we answer the question, how does the truth of these verses shape our lives as followers of Jesus? Well, it tells us something about the disciples that just, it just couldn't be any more the opposite of what this passage tells us about Jesus. The disciples here, clearly, they just don't understand. They're basically saying, Jesus, what is Jesus talking about? What was that whole thing with Judas leaving earlier? Why do you keep telling us you're going to leave us and go to the Father and come back to us? They just, they just didn't understand. Actually, we learn from their abandonment of Jesus later in the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't really trust that what Jesus was saying was necessarily the right way these things should pan out. Well, 
Let me just, uh, let me actually just even think of Matthew. Matthew. Matthew 16 is a good example of this, actually. Jesus turns around and tells the disciples very plainly, not in figurative speech here. He says, the Son of Man's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer at the hands of the Pharisees. He's going to, crucify, he's going to be crucified. He's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And, and Peter, he, he takes Jesus to the side. Literally, he says that. He said, no, Jesus, that's, you're the Christ. That's not how this, we can't have that panning out like that. And Jesus literally says, get behind me, Satan. That's how you know, <laughs> arrogant Peter was being, or Peter, whereas Jesus was absolutely sure. So what does this passage display here? Well, it displays they, they didn't understand. So what is it telling us about us? Well, here's the, dif- the distinct difference between Jesus and his disciples and Jesus and us. Jesus knows literally everything about everything. Everything about everything. They don't know what the next hour will bring. Jesus literally knows what it's like to be outside of time. We can't even think in that category. To know the beginning from the end, to to know the past and the future, they don't know what the next minute will bring. And finally, what we'll see as our text progresses, the disciples had absolutely no idea why the events that Jesus was talking about and why the events that would unfold within the next 24 to 72 hours would have worked out for their ultimate joy and their ultimate satisfaction. But Jesus did. (laughs) So what's the application for our lives? Well, we learned that one, we're just like the disciples. We don't know what the next minute will bring. We might have a good idea. We might be right some of the time, but we're only ever guessing. We're only ever presuming. And and if we follow what James teaches in, in the Bible, we're only ever trusting it to the God who knows. Two, we can rejoice as we are confronted by this reality. As this text reminds us that we are finite and frail creatures with limited knowledge, we can rejoice that we can trust the one who does know all things, that has all knowledge, that holds us in his hands. And then third and finally, we can rejoice that our lives are in the hands of a good and all-knowing Savior. Could you imagine the terror of our lives being in our own hands, we would have absolutely no assurance of anything at all. That's a terrifying reality. But because we're entrusted to Jesus, we can lay hold of and grasp the truth of what Jesus is about to say to his followers, which is this. Despite what the situation may look like, now and in what lies ahead, What awaits us as his followers will inevitably, inevitably work for our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction. We need to trust, brothers and sisters, that whatever comes is ultimately best. Even if what comes is the heart-wrenching agony of watching your Savior hang on the cross, surrounded by cheering crowds as they, they, 
They embraced what was happening joyfully. We need to trust whatever comes, even if that is pain for us, that is so great that there's no possible way we could even guess why God would allow it to happen. That's so hard, isn't it? For us to truly trust in those moments. I'm sure you have experienced moments like that. Yet here's the sweet, peculiar relief. When we just fall at God's feet and we simply let go of trying to understand and taking that burden upon our mind that can't even grasp it, and we just say, Lord, I trust you. There's a peculiar relief in that. I think of the, the hymn, Whatever My God Ordains Is Right. There's a line in that song that has comforted me <laughs> innumerable times. When life throws indescribable pain through circumstances I have found myself in. Let me read it to you. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me still that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Jerry Bridges, he once wrote, God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of his children. He never allows Satan or circumstances nor any ill-intending person to afflict us unless he uses that affliction for our good. God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more to the likeness of his son. Do we always understand that at the time? No. Can I explain that to you or explain the things that have happened in my life which caused me pain? Are you pain? Absolutely not. So it makes it so hard. But Romans 8, 28 still stands. It tells me a truth that is beyond our understanding. God knows all things and has all power that in all things He works for the good of those who love Him. We can't understand it. The Christian life is a miraculous thing when you think about it. In times of deep pain, God gives people what Spurgeon calls a peculiar comfort. And David, he demonstrates this in Psalm 19, verse 50. He says, this is my comfort and affliction. Thy word hath quickened me. I was reading Psalm 63 recently. Jesus, David is being hunted down by his son Absalom, who's trying to kill him. His life's a mess. And David turns around and says, God, your steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, I will trust in you. <laughs> it's a peculiar comfort and a wonderful thing. I don't think we could ever fully grasp the unimaginable pain of the next 24 hours that would unfold in the lives of the 11 disciples. Jesus, their master and their friend, silhouetted by the beams of the rising sun and then eventually overshadowed by the darkness that covered the whole land, gasping for breath. Just like Susan and Lucy, they just watched Aslan in horror and they must have thought, why doesn't he do something? 
Why isn't he able to stop this? This can't be how it ends. But there they stood and they watched in despair as Jesus says it is finished and breathes his last. Can you imagine the pain? Seeing Jesus, lifeless, blood-soaked body fixed to this cruel Roman cross as crowds of jeers and mockers watch on with joy. To them, it looked as though evil had triumphed, that darkness once again had claimed the day, and that the light which came into the world in John chapter 1 had been extinguished here. But if only they just listened more carefully. If only their eyes would be open to what was really occur, they would realize it would not be so. Because look what Jesus promised them in verses 19 to 22. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also now, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So here we see that Jesus, who knows all things, knows what about, is about to unfold, obviously knows what his disciples are thinking, and he cares for them. He, he's concerned that they are confused. So he reassures them again that everything will ultimately work out for their joy. And they just need to trust him. Just need to trust him. He says that they will weep as the world rejoices. He's talking about the cross. Jesus knew that as he hung there, that his friends and disciples would be weeping. They would be completely distraught. And all around them, the most wicked scene possible would be unfolding. The crowds would be crying out, who cried out, crucify him, crucifying, would now be cheering at the very same scene. Could you imagine how that would feel in that situation? That the world around you rejoices in wickedness as you're, you weep, well, I'm actually sure you can. We don't need to look too far back in Irish history. An abortion. Do we think of that horrible, horrible day where thousands cheered in the city center of Dublin and we wept for babies who would die as a result. But Jesus promised. He promises his disciples more than just sorrow as the world rejoices. He promised that in a little while their grief would turn to joy in verse 20. And he uses the illustration of a woman go, going through the pains of labor and childbirth and how the scene of seeing their baby's face turns their pain into joy. So it will be for his followers in a little while. He says in verse 22, You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus knew evil would not win. Death would not hold him. 
Jesus knew the scenes of elation and, and bliss and unimaginable joy that just would be, would be bursting from the hearts of his disciples in three days' time. He knew it all. I think of the joy of, of Mary and Martha accounted in, in Matthew's gospel. They turn up to the tomb, weary, completely heartbroken and distraught at everything the witness, and suddenly they're confronted by an angel who says, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Listen to these words, brothers and sisters. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. Come and see the place where he lay. And then they just depart. Could you imagine the joy? And they, they run to tell the disciples. And then you have this account in John's gospel where Peter and John are doing the quickest 40-yard dash you've ever seen. They're running over the top of each other. John, who writes the gospel, adds the detail that he got there first. And when the other disciple had reached the tomb first, it says this, he went in, he saw and he believed. He saw and he finally believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. He's risen from the dead. Now it all made sense. Your sorrow would be turned to joy. Because they would see the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus who is victorious over death, the perfect spotless sacrifice for, sins, for the sins of all who would believe in him and the one who would grant them everlasting life because he's the one who came back from the realm of the dead. Their sorrow turned to joy. The resurrection of Christ brought joy that could be never taken away from them. I think of Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So again, what does this passage and all that we know about what happened in the Gospels from John 16 onwards mean to us? How do, we, how do we apply this amazing truth to our lives? Well, let's bring back our first observation. I'll mention it again, and we'll pair it together with this observation. Here's what I want us to grasp, church. Because of the all-knowing, resurrected Jesus, we're in an already not yet tension, in an already not yet state. What do I mean by that? I mean this. We have the greatest reason there is to be joyful this morning because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And his promise that we will know joy and one day join in that resurrection too, that's inevitable for the believer. Isn't that amazing? So in this sense, we're already a joyful people. But also, we still have reason, don't we? Great reason to be sorrowful this morning. We look out in our world. We see tyrants who think that they have ultimate power just, just abuse the lives of helpless civilians. We see hatred and division in our world on a scale that is just depressing we still wrestle with indwelling residual sin in our lives, and we see that sin manifest itself in all manner of wickedness across the world. And we struggle with personal pain and heartache at a level that we feel at times we can't bear. Let's be honest. That's the not yet part. Already, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. We have a great reason to be rejoiced as the people of God this morning. Not yet we're waiting that he'll come again, where he'll, he'll eradicate the not yet 
part. Here's the good news. Jesus in this passage tells his followers their pain and sorrow would be for a little while as they awaited Jesus when he awaited Jesus' return, his resurrection in three days' time, and that when he returned, their sorrow would turn to joy. No one could take that away from them. Well, the truth of that passage transcends, it, come, it, it, it goes beyond the story here in John 16 right up until our modern day lives. We may sorrow many times in our lives. We have done. We will do. That's unfortunate, but we will. But we will as we await when we see Jesus our Lord again. So you see the meaning of the story. The story saying, a little while you will weep, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And then their sorrow is turned to joy three days later when Jesus rises from the dead. We know Jesus has risen from the dead, but we also know in a little while we'll see him face to face. He's going to eradicate all the other problems that are present in this world. He's promised that he's coming back, and we have full assurance that one day, as I said, the not yet part will be eradicated. One day, your present sorrow, believer, will turn to ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, believer, and it's for the same reason, the resurrected Christ. That's why. There is no greater hope, there is no greater reason for joy this morning than the resurrected Christ. Now, let me give you a little phrase from a book uh, my wife and I are going through with Willow, our daughter. Well, actually, we've just finished it. We're reading to her now, helps her wee cognitive development, we're told. Um, but also, it's a good opportunity for us to vet the books that we'll eventually let her, her read. But we're just finished this one by a Christian author, S.D. Smith. Um, I actually highly recommend it for your children. It's called The Green Amber. It was recommended by a dear friend of mine, Tom Boyer. It's a story about rabbits who lived in a great wood called Natalia. And this once great and beautiful wood was the blissful home of these rabbits. But it becomes corrupted. And it becomes invaded by wolves and hawks led by this evil figure, Morbin Blackhawk. Well, the rabbits document this time in their history as the after-terrors, everything that followed their invasion, they're scattered and they go into hiding. But it's in this hiding, this remnant of, of hopeful rabbits arm themselves. They build secret undergang communities, all united with a common hope that, and here's the phrase, it will not be so in the mended wood. Does that ignite hope in you? You see the Christian intention going in there, the Christian hope that S.D. Smith has just injected into his book. It will not be so in the mended wood. Well, the rabbits had been through unimaginable hardship. They'd lost so many loved ones, but they had a great hope that one day their king would come. He would lead them to victory in battle over the wolves and the hawks, and he would establish the mended wood. Well, I won't spoil the story. But I will take the phrase, we are the hopeful people. We are the people who can truly say it will not be so in the men that would because Jesus, our King, he will come and he will eradicate sin once and for all and he will establish his kingdom forever. And here's the amazing part. We hell-deserving sinners saved through the empty hands of 
faith, by the grace of Almighty God, will follow him into that kingdom. (laughs) I can't wait. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, before I close with the final two verses, and I promise it will only be two minutes, that them two verses, I apologize for mismanaging my time. We've gone on a bit. But uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, sorry, I want to confront you lovingly, <laughs> lovingly, with the risen Jesus. And I want to challenge you. Can you say with full assurance that one day your sorrow will turn into joy? Let me remove any doubt. The Bible says, without Christ, you can't. And that gives no, no minister of the gospel pleasure to say, because you will one day die. And if Jesus has not taken the punishment of your sins upon himself, then you will bear that punishment. But it doesn't have to be. Your sorrow can be turned to joy. You can share in this great hope, residing in your soul this morning of everlasting life, of reconciliation and a relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins. And here's how the gospel says it's possible. Believe in Jesus. Believe. (laughs) Now listen, if you need a help understanding that this morning, speak to the elders. They would be thrilled. I know they would. I know these men to show you that the greatest Savior and the greatest hope and the greatest source of ultimate joy and satisfaction this morning. Speak to them and they'll show you how to believe. Now, as I said, we don't have time to, to deal with verses 23 to 24 this morning. I, I don't want to be an affliction on you. I want to be an encouragement and refreshment to you. So let's wrap up. Two minutes. Two minutes. Let's read the verse. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and receive and your joy may be full. Church, let us rejoice this morning that the truth found in verses 16 to 24 of this part of John's gospel tells us, one, that even though we don't understand everything happening in our lives right now, Jesus does. Two, that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, inevitably provides his believers ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction that can't be taken away from them. And lastly, let us rejoice this morning that if we know Jesus, one day every question will be answered and we will now ask nothing of him. Our joy will be full in the mended wood. Let me pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this anchor for the soul, this life-giving, life-shaping, life-transforming truth and reality that we as, as your children will survive death, that our punishment that we deserve has been taken upon us by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that you've done all of this for your glory and for our joy and ultimate satisfaction in you. So, Lord, I ask that this word would just refresh us, that it would stay with us, that that it would ruminate in us, Lord, and that it would do as your word says it will, make us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.